is up guys and welcome back to tom's little corner of the internet i forgot what i actually called this podcast i should have checked that before i did this yeah whatever it's not a big deal but anyways you probably guessed it from this title of what i'm going to be talking about today so i wanted to kind of like round up like an amalgamation of things that i wanted to talk about because the last couple times that i did like these short little podcasts it was more like just a pure like segment of an episode you know it was just kind of like <laughs> couple different movie reviews and then I just kind of left it alone. I want to try and change that up a little bit. So I want to talk about multiple things in one topic and because these are three things that I'm personally very passionate about right now and that I really, really want to talk about. So I'm just, uh, you know, I'm kind of excited. I I want to get into it. So obviously first on the list is Far Cry 6. Now there were a lot of different things that kind of got teased over Ubisoft's state of play over these last couple of weeks. Ubisoft is kind of one of those game developers that I go back and forth on, you know, and I kind of get the impression that's what a lot of people do because there seems to be like this pervading sense of like, I don't even know what the right word is for it, like professional bipolarism within Ubisoft, you know, like sometimes we get these absolute banger hits like Assassin's Creed Origins that just completely shakes up the sandbox of what we've come to expect from an Assassin's Creed game, told an interesting story introduced some new characters that really got you invested had some really good voice acting had some absolutely excellent open world design had these stunning landscapes and all that but then you also get things like watchdogs that promised a lot of content came out and didn't really deliver on anything you know like the graphics were super toned down way that you interacted with the cyber world was extremely underplayed the story didn't really feel like it went anywhere as a matter of fact i'd argue the story is probably the weakest part of watchdogs which is saying quite a lot and by extension i've never been particularly excited about watchdogs sequels like watchdogs 2 is okay i will say it has some moments it has some genuinely cool moments but in Watch Dogs 1, I kind of thought we were going more of like this darker route of like exploring these like really sort of interpersonal society-like themes. And it kind of felt like it could be really interesting if it was given this full sort of perverse sense of like justice to it, you know? But the second game kind of went really hard on the more the more friendly, the more colorful, the more like you know broadcast of characters the more like oh the world is your playground as opposed to oh this world is shit but i will say at least this much there's not like a oof i'm sorry i had to like stop recording there for a second and go drink some water there's kind of this issue I have with games with Ubisoft that I kind of mentioned before it's just that it feels like they kind of go just they do go back and forth between being just really excellent just really game changing kind of like uh, entries and just ideas that don't completely pan out you know what I mean Far Cry is one of those series that I have a very big love hate relationship with on one hand I absolutely adore Far Cry 3 despite having an absolutely uh, <laughs> I don't even know what the right word is for it. I, I have a phobia of sharks. I, I can't I can't do sharks in any capacity whatsoever. I really can't do open water in any capacity. Like, thalassophobia is pretty real with me, and I'm not okay with it. But, like, winding back the clock, you know, Far Cry 4 was sort of the anti-Far Cry 3 for people like me who can't deal with open water kind of shit. So, like, Far Cry 4 is 
really really good in my opinion in my opinion far cry 4 has was kind of like the the peak of the series as, as far as i'm personally concerned i only very recently played far cry 2 it is pretty damn good i'll give credit where it's due it actually aged pretty darn well it's very realistic that being said far cry 5 and far cry 3 for me are two games that were saved for opposite reasons like far cry 5 was kind of saved because it had arguably the best exploration in the series whereas far cry 3 was saved for me and being able to muscle through it because of the villain which everyone talks about Voss. like everyone knows he's one of the best video game villains ever we all know it no need denying it far cry 6 for me at least at face value with what we saw looks like something that i'm genuinely interested in it looks like it could be that next iteration in the series that I genuinely want to play all the way through and experience all of it. I mean, full disclosure, one of the biggest reasons for that is because I am a really, really big Giancarlo Esposito fan, so anything involving him is an instant win in my book. But on top of that, they're giving us all these really cool, like, you know, customization options for weapons. There's going to be this really big open world to explore in Cuba, which is pretty cool. There's not many games that really do much with South America in terms of a truly open world explorative kind of concept. And it just looks like it can be this really, really cool exploration of social themes. Now, I will say that's also one of the big things that I'm concerned about because I don't want Far Cry 6 to be a preachy tale because they got really close with that in Far Cry 5. They did a fairly decent job of not politicizing a lot of it and kind of using it more as a cautionary satire tale. But they did say very upfront that Far Cry 6 definitely has a lot of political themes in it and politics they go into a lot of their storycraft. I'm just hoping that they're using politics more as an avenue to explore these social problems as opposed to using it as a justification for imposing their own ideology. I just, I don't think that ever really comes across very well in really any form of cinematic medium. But, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe this would be one of those rare exceptions, but I'm kind of holding my breath on that front. But from like a gameplay perspective, you know, from a like hype perspective, from a game, uh, I already said gameplay, <laughs> from like a graphics perspective, from a open world perspective, all that stuff that I loved Far Cry 4 for, that was fun to say out loud. I'm very excited for Far Cry 6. Very, very, very excited. So, the, like I said, some of the concerns that I have for Far Cry 6 is mostly due to Ubisoft's reputation. They've just, they've had a rocky road, man. Like, there's, there's some of them that are excellent, but there's a lot of them that are just not good. And it just seems like Ubisoft can never quite nail putting the right team behind everyone. And again, like, it's just, it's not always bad. Sometimes it's just kind of mediocre, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm rambling now at this point, obviously, but there is a part of me that is very excited for it. I just need to actually, like, you know, get the hype train going. You know what I mean? Like, I, but, but overall, I mean, that's kind of the only thing I took away from Ubisoft's state of play. I, I'm going to reserve my judgment for E3 to see what else they announce, but I'm cautiously excited cautiously excited i really really hope i really hope oh man so now that i got far cry out of the way i kind of really want to gush about this film because there's a lot that i liked in it so brief disclaimer if you haven't seen a quiet place 2 
stop this podcast, go on to Fanvango, Cinemark, AMC, whatever your choice of preference is, buy a ticket, and go see it. Risk it, just go see it. I guarantee you this is a film you do not want to sit at home and watch as your first time. You want to see it in theaters as your first time. It is worth the price of admission. I cannot... I cannot exaggerate that enough, okay? It is that good. Also, as a brief disclaimer, I am going to be spoiling some things in this very brief review, so if you are also not wanting to have it spoiled and you haven't seen it yet or you were hoping to see it at some point, once again, either skip forward to probably like the 12 or 13 minute mark. I'll try my best to stay on topic, but fair warning, I'm not very good at that when I'm talking about things that I love. But worst case scenario, just stop the podcast, come back and listen to it when you've already seen the film, you know, like make your own decision there. I'm just saying, you know, like just, just be aware there's going to be some spoilers and you should go see this film. So with all that out of the way, first thing I also want to say about this is I did not like the first Quiet Place. I realize that it is a fan favorite. I realize that like I appear to be one of like three people in the entire world who disliked it. I mean, whether you go on to Rotten Tomatoes, you go on to IMDb, you go on to Letterboxd, apparently everybody loved the first movie. Everyone praised John Krasinski for his directorial style. Everyone praised the tension you got out of the film. They loved the, like, chemistry between all the family members. They loved how it was a novel concept. They loved the editing, blah, blah, blah. Like, and you know, look, I'll be the first to admit, the first movie does do a lot of things very well number one the idea of removing like everything but diegetic sound from the film is nerve-wracking i will give credit where it's due Uh, it, it doesn't really work the second time around with the first movie which ironically is not the problem with the second movie but either way but the first movie like it doesn't really feel like it maintains that sense of cohesive nerve wracking tenseness mostly just because of a lot of different elements that I want to get into real quick. The main reason that I didn't really find it to be something that's an enjoyable watch for me like the second time around with the first movie is because we only have these core like four to five characters that we really interact with right and of those we only ever really interact with their daughter and with John Krasinski's character the dad. Now, I will be the first to admit, John Krasinski does a very good job of going from the lovable goofball comedian actor from The Office to this outright sort of terrified just family man who's just doing his best to keep his family alive and what's basically the alien apocalypse, you know? He does a really, really good job in the role. But the thing is, like, this is one of those cases where a novel concept does not automatically make it a good film. Is it a very interesting thing to explore with removing sound and sort of having characters at like requiring to be quiet yes it is very very cool after a certain amount of time you realize that it kind of feels like a gimmick at times and by extension your brain starts finding the holes and your brain starts going okay i know what's about to happen and the reason that this isn't prevalent in the second film without getting too far ahead of myself is in the second film There's so many shots and there's so many layers to how John Krasinski frames his cinematography to where you have all these background elements that are happening at the same time where your brain is sort of making the connection of what's going to happen 
but the fact that you know a little bit more than the characters do sets you intensely on edge throughout the entire film. The thing is, with the first film, I didn't really get that feeling. Like, you do get that background detail, but it's not as prevalent, and it kind of feels like you experience things at the exact same time as the character. And a more simple way of putting that is there's a lot of jump scares. That is the thing with the first film. Because of the fact that its whole scare premise is based on the idea of like the sound is what gets you and because there's so little sound in the rest of the film, the jump scares don't really feel like traditional jump scares. You know what I mean? There's not like that slow stringing violin where you're like, oh no, when's it gonna come? So it is like genuinely surprising, but I am of the firm belief that knowing the scare is coming but not knowing how it's going to happen is infinitely more terrifying than just not being able to hear anything and suddenly there's boom loud noise. I don't particularly care for that style of it. To be fair, it's not like Quiet Place is trying to be straight horror, it's more alien sci-fi terror with some horror infusions, so I can't really completely fault the film for that. The other main reason that I didn't care for the first film is that I just really didn't give a shit about any of the characters until like the last 20 minutes of the film. And I do realize this is just one of those cases where the problem is that we didn't have a ton of setup for these characters and ironically we have more setup in the second film than we did in the first. And I mean it's fine, I get that it was his directorial debut, John Krasinski was still trying to figure out his style, he was still trying to figure out his writing, he was still trying to figure out these characters. I'm all for it. You can tell that the passion was there, but it was something that me, as just being the person that I am, wasn't able to get into it to the same level other people were in terms of the characters. So I have all that out of the way. Now you know why I don't like the first film. Here's why I absolutely adore the second film and why I am going to be seeing it multiple times in theaters. Number one. The cinematography in this film is leaves above the competition in terms of terror and horror, and it is miles above what the first movie offered. So, for example, the first, like, I think around 10 or 12 minutes of the film takes place in a flashback, okay? So the majority of it, no, not the majority of it, the, the majority of the beginning takes place in this flashback, okay? The really nice thing about it is it is shot so confidently and so creatively. There are so many just awesome profile tracking shots establishing how small the town is. There's this amazing, amazing one take shot that you saw a little glimpse of in the trailer. It's the one that involves the bus, it's the one that involves the mom, it's the one that involves them driving backwards and sort of like swerving and going into this whole one take shot. It is Mm, chef kiss it is gorgeous it is by far one of the best shots in the entire film and the fact that i'm not saying it's the best shot in the entire film should tell you but just how far and above the average the cinematography is in this film i cannot stress it enough and that just carries into the entire rest of the film not a single not a single one of these shots made me sitting there as a budding cinematographer and as an amateur photographer never once did i sit there and go i don't like that framing i don't like that color composition i don't like that camera movement i have rarely rarely come across a film where i don't have that critique as a matter of fact like sitting here thinking about it and talking about it the only other two films i can think of where i had that reaction bearing in mind i've seen thousands of films right the only other times I can think of that that didn't cross my mind is Watchmen, ironically enough, from Zack Snyder, 
and Birdman with Michael Keaton. Those are the only two films I can think of where I did not have that reaction to at least one shot in the film. The fact that A Quiet Place Part 2 is in that pantheon for me it should speak volumes to just how confident the camera crew was with this. I just cannot stress that enough, you guys. What else did I like about this film? The acting, uh, uh, you know, I think I said it before, I don't have a problem with the acting in the first film. I think it's really, really well done. It doesn't mean that I care for the characters, but the acting is excellent. The acting is nothing but improved in this film, and arguably a lot of that is because John Krasinski does the intelligent thing of sort of like having the characters run into older characters that are established in the flashback, but these characters have been living the world in the same amount of time that these characters have. So since they already have like these established like bases and they have like these established soundproof barriers where they hide themselves away, it gives the characters more of an opportunity to speak and more of an opportunity for the actors to really kind of stress their charisma and show their dramatic chops. And it's a really intelligent way of writing the film where they're not just running into these characters by happenstance, they're running into them because everyone's sort of doing the same thing. And the fact that everybody just has these established you know, daily protocols, they have these abilities to emote more, they have these abilities to just talk to each other more, and I loved it. I gotta give a special shout out though, in particular to Emily Blunt and Killian Murphy in this film. First off, Emily Blunt is quickly becoming one of my favorite actresses on the scene, period. She is so good. Granted, she's not in a ton of films that I like, but never have I disliked films because she's in them. And this film proves that she has some really, really good dramatic chops in her portfolio. She is excellent in this film. She has these moments of genuine panic, terror, love, empathy, that like my heart was aching for this character. I felt for her character. It was genuinely heart-wrenching to watch some of the actions that happened in this film. And again, a lot of that is also just owed to Krasinski's excellent writing and directing. But before I go too far into that, I also do want to briefly mention Killian Murphy. Now, you probably don't know this because if this is one of the first times listening to a recording by me, or if you haven't really watched any of my YouTube content or anything like that, or if you don't know me in person, I am a massive Killian Murphy fan. And I mean that to the point that he is in my top five actors of all time for a lot of different reasons. Wind That Shakes the Barley, one of my favorite films about Ireland. The Dark Knight, Batman Begins. Yeah, he's not in The Dark Knight as much, but Batman Begins, he's in there pretty prevalently, you know what I mean? Peaky Blinders, one of my top 10 shows of all time, man. Dunkirk, one of my top 10 World War II movies. Like, Killian Murphy is just an excellent actor who does not get the recognition that he deserves, and I am so happy he is in this film. And the fact is, man, unless you are somebody who knows Killian Murphy and you know how to recognize, like, that jaw-like portfolio and you know how to recognize those eyes that he has, you're not gonna know this is Killian Murphy, man. He's acting a completely different character from anything you've seen him act before. He looks completely different than you've seen him before. He's all disheveled, he's got this scraggly beard, he's just got these haunted, sunken eyes. Like, he is just magnetic in this role. I cannot praise him enough. Both him and Blunt just absolutely deserve a round of applause for this film. Obviously, we're a long ways away from saying it's an Oscar-worthy performance, and I personally think the Oscars are extremely overrated. But I will say, if either one of them won an award for Best Supporting Actor or Actress, I would clap and say, nope, you know what? Well-deserved. Maybe it won't be my choice, but well-deserved. What else do I enjoy about this film? Man, there's just so much. The tension, like I said, the tension in this film is so 
palpable because you know just a little bit more than the characters do and you are just sitting there just grinding your nails down to a nub you are just shaking in your seat like please turn around please do this please do that you know what's about to happen you know how these things work like please 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 and once again the, the one element that i did appreciate from the first film that i love 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 in this film is the idea of the two deaf children you know the kids of emily blunt who you know just they can't hear and just having them in any scene is just nerve-wracking man just the, just the kids always being in danger and like still trying to be brave and still trying to go out and do their own thing just absolutely excellent stuff cannot praise it enough the last two things that i want to talk about for this film so i've already been talking about it for a long ass time the story is much much improved that's a big thing about the first one for me is that i didn't feel like there was a point a to point b plot it felt like we started at point b because we never established the characters so we started already in the world which is fine we don't always have to establish characters right away but i just didn't like how the movie felt like it started at point b and eventually it got to like b.2 you know what i mean like it's never like it never feels like it really moves past its own b plot but the second film feels like we've moved on past that completely we start at c plot and we go all the way through to d and arguably setting up e plot as well it feels like it just does a much more natural progression of the characters it actually just conveys a sense of cohesion and practical movement through the world and through the story and it just it genuinely feels just better you know what i mean like it just it feels like a complete story but one that sets up an interesting premise for what comes later which is very very nice to hear uh, and it was very very nice to see i was really worried that like i was getting so into the movie i was getting so wrapped in emily blunt's acting i was getting so wrapped up in killian murphy's portrayal i was getting so engrossed by these amazing cinematography shots i was getting so wrapped up in noticing all of the clean edits i was loving you know the monster design and the noise design and, but there was that part in the back of my mind that was like, man, if this does the same thing as the first movie where the story just ends up going nowhere and I don't really care for these characters by the end of it, I'm going to be really bummed out. Very pleasantly surprised that that was not the case. Very pleasantly surprised. Just excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. The last thing that I want to mention, which ironically is like the one thing that I don't really like about this film, simultaneously as a storyteller, I love it. I know that sounds really backwards let me explain the ending of this film is a massive cliffhanger i can't stress that enough it is a massive cliffhanger on one hand i love it for what it does on the other hand it really really sucks you get so wrapped up in it and you are so engrossed and you are so along for the ride and so wrapped up in these characters' struggles and this world that's going to shit that when the screen blacks out and the credits start rolling, you genuinely have to kind of take a second to process that the film just ended. And not process like emotionally, but process like visually and mentally. Like, you just sat there for this, you know, two-hour runtime, just glued to the screen with your arms gripping this, you know, the chair, and then the credits roll, and you're like, wait a minute, that was it? Like, we're at the end? What the hell does that mean? That's kind of what I'm driving at. Like, it just, it feels like it, like the best iteration of a cliffhanger I've seen in a long time, but it is still a cliffhanger, and it's hard to justify that in a lot of different ways. 
Granted, a big reason why it's hard to justify is because it took us so long to get this film. Granted, there was nothing we could do about that. There was nothing we could change. We just had to roll with the punches that we had in 2020. But I have a feeling that if this film had released at the time that it was supposed to, which means that like by this time this year, we probably would have had a teaser for the third film. People would have been much less, in my opinion, like angry about this film's ending. I'm not angry about how it ended, but like I said, it is very difficult to justify in a lot of respects. But yeah, that's it, guys. Like, you know, like I said, man, you just, you, you should see this film. It's extraordinarily good, and I cannot use that term more literally enough. The last thing that I wanted to talk about is that George Lucas may be taking back creative control of Star Wars. This is a rumor that I think deserves a big grain of salt because there is no guarantee that it is true and I do not believe that any of us should assume that it is true. It's really easy to sit there and say, well, yeah, but they constantly screwed it up, so it makes sense they've taken back control. Sure, that's a really, really easy way of looking at it, but the harsh reality is that there's a lot of business practices that go into something that massive, and I find it very hard to believe that Disney is going to push out Kathleen Kennedy and allow Dave Filoni and George Lucas to go back to doing what they were doing, and even if they did, it's not going to be the same kind of creative process that we saw from old George Lucas. Like, say what you will about the prequels, say what you will about the original trilogy. At the very least, there was a vision and George Lucas followed through on it and he presented us with a very fun, enjoyable cinematic product. And then people like Dave Filoni followed through with these excellent storylines in the Clone Wars and Rebels and things like that. And we had some video games like, you know, Force Unleashed that expanded this universe and gave us these really interesting dynamics. But we just, I think it just needs to be like, we need to be very hesitant about getting excited about it because it just, it really seems to me like there is a very, 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 very small chance of George Lucas actually coming back to Star Wars. I could see him coming back in some extent as like maybe an advisor because we did see him do a little bit of producing work and a little bit of creative writing work on The Mandalorian. And he did a little bit with The Clone Wars as well, but not a ton. So to be fair, maybe this is their way of like slowly reintroducing George Lucas and kind of giving him a little bit more control over it. I personally would be very, very shocked. I know to anybody that listens to this, they're going to say, well, yeah, but Kathleen Kennedy is like universally hated by the community. You're right. She absolutely is. But at the end of the day, she's made them a lot of money. And she's been around for a long, long time, dude. She has produced some of the biggest films of all time. She produced Indiana Jones. She produced Jurassic Park, guys. She has proven her mettle as a producer. Do I like her? Personally, no. I think she's a very toxic personality. And I think that she has ultimately kind of failed to capitalize on what made Star Wars good. And she's alienated a lot of people as a result which is a big big bummer because star wars used to be such an inviting community and now it's just so divisive and so toxic and bitter and salty and i'm part of it you know i'm part of that i hated the sequels i hated the sequels i was okay with fallen order i hated most of mandalorian sorry not sorry including season two i'm enjoying bad batch to a degree but there's still a lot of elements of it that i don't enjoy and 
I won't deny I'm a little bit excited to hear that George Lucas may be taking back a little bit of creative control over with it. I do not personally believe that he's going to take back full creative control like people are insinuating. That to me seems extremely unlikely. But it could be cool if he did, you know, like it could be kind of neat. Like I, like I said, I wouldn't complain if it happened. But I also don't want it to be something where he gets back in control and that means that we never see Ryan Johnson's trilogy, we never see more from Dave Filoni, we never see much more from John Favreau. Like, I want to see more of these people. John, Fa like for all the reasons that I dislike The Mandalorian, John Favreau still did a great job with the series. He, I hopefully will continue to do a great job. Dave Filoni did great things with Clone Wars, especially the last season. And he's doing pretty good things with Bad Batch that I'm enjoying for the most part. And I genuinely believe Ryan Johnson is one of the most talented filmmakers on the scene. And I really, 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 really want to see his trilogy. I genuinely think he can make something really interesting. But at the end of the day, that's all I'm going to have for you guys. So thanks for checking in. Thanks for watching the episode. Thanks for chilling out with me and listening to me rant and rave about Far Cry 6 and Quiet Place and George Lucas and Star Wars. I know I can ramble quite a lot, especially when it's something that I genuinely enjoy. So I appreciate you sticking with me if you did. Without further ado, guys, that's going to be it for me. Be sure to go check out our content on YouTube as well. It's under youtube.com slash scoophash. We also have a Discord, which you can find in links on the YouTube channel itself. There's sadly not much I can do here, so please definitely go check us out. I also stream every now and then under the same handle, um, twitch.tv slash scoophash. It's not very often because, frankly, I work an awful lot, so I'm not usually able to actually sit down and properly stream. But such as it is, guys, like I said, thank you for watching this episode. If you did, be sure to check out the other content. Be sure to check out the other episodes that I've done as well. I'll talk to you next time.